I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This week on The Trade Guys, we're joined by Christine McDaniel of the Mercatus Center to talk about fish subsidies and a lot of topics of what's going on at next week's ministerial conference for the WTO. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to this week's episode of The Trade Guys. This is Trade Guy Scott, and uh, Bill and I are, first of all, in studio, which is a pleasure, but second, we're joined by a special guest, Christine McDaniel. Our topic this week is the upcoming WTO ministerial, known as MC13, which is next week. We're taping this on February 22nd. So there are many interesting topics, but probably the most important one for both the organization and for for trade liberalization, is the fish subsidies agreement. We are joined today by an expert on fish subsidies, Christine McDaniel. Christine is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center. She has had a fantastic career as an economist, uh, having worked as a trade economist for the U.S. Trade Representative, the U.S. International Trade Commission, the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and uh, has done work with economic officials at the Department of Commerce. She's deeply knowledgeable on trade and trade economics. We're delighted that she's come over to join us. And Christine, you'll find out, fully deserves the title of honorary trade guy. So Bill and I are delighted to welcome her. Christine, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about fish. I do remember this subject has been a long-lived one when it comes to trade matters. In the dust of the 1999 MC3 in Seattle, Washington, also known as the Battle of Seattle. We listed the losers, those of us who were supporting trade liberalization, said, who are the losers in this? And the third on the list put there by famous trade lawyer Gary Horlick was fish. <laughs> and so so this, this issue has been tabled for you know, well over 20 years. It looks like there's progress being made. There certainly was, the, was an agreement reached of some sort at the previous ministerial. But if you could walk us through what's happening, what is this about, what has occurred already, and is anything consequential going to happen next week? Well, that is a lot. I can answer some of those, maybe. First of all, I should say I am not a fisheries expert. Everything I know about global overfishing, I pretty much just learned in the past 12 months. <laughs> um, I grew up fishing with my dad on lakes in northern Illinois and across Wisconsin. But the global overfishing issue is is pretty new to me. But I realized uh, about a year plus ago that this was it, one of those increasingly complex trade issues that was probably going to take a multidisciplinary approach. And so we teamed up with the University of Pittsburgh's um, Center for Governance and Markets and through this co-hosted a workshop about a year uh, last summer. And all, a lot of research came out of that and and so I'm really just standing on the shoulders of, of um, those giants here, working with people from a number of different backgrounds. But I come at it, of course, you know, through a trade background. And so I'm 
I obviously I, I do care about the fish, but I'm I'm really interested in it. Uh, kind of fascinated to see whether and to what extent WTO members can work this new issue out, as you say, Scott, a, the a global commons issue. And you know, this is probably going to just be one of uh, many more global commons issues that that we'll be dealing with uh, maybe in our lifetime. So in terms of what they achieved a couple of years ago at MC12, I mean, it was a landmark agreement. And everyone who, who talks about this talks about the, the 2022 agreement as being a landmark agreement. And nobody wants to undermine that or minimize that in any way. And, um, and it truly was a landmark agreement, but it has some loopholes. And for it to be effective, they've got to do a little more work. And and then the magic is going to be an implementation. So look, but these are big problems and they're going to take, you know, a while to sort out. So we have to kind of think about big picture timing. But what MC12 did on the 2022 agreement, basically three things. So, uh, well, what they wanted was they wanted they wanted three things. They, they wanted to do prohibitions on subsidies for illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. Okay, IUU fishing. They wanted to also deal with overfishing. So in other words, prohibit subsidies that contributed to activities that, that led to overfishing. They also wanted to prohibit subsidies and activities that led to um, overfishing and overcapacity. And they ended up getting some of that, basically the first two things, the um, prohibitions on subsidies that lead, led to IUU fishing and then... Um, Agreement on the need to, you know, keep assessing the the health of the fish stocks, um, and then also prohibiting unregulated fishing on the high seas. So it was something, but if you look at it, you know, I mean, in terms of was it enough? Well, I would say it's necessary but not sufficient, right? So they didn't get everything they wanted. You never do in these things, but in this case, there were just so many loopholes that it would be pretty easy to to um. I mean, if you think of it as like a fishing net, like the, the that net is pretty loose. Okay, so the um they ended up. So what they want to do is they want to add some further broader language uh, in MC13. And it, a lot of the details haven't been uh, fully released yet. But in essence, what they're trying to do is get countries to commit to prohibiting certain types of subsidies. They want to get countries to commit to categorizing certain subsidies, reporting on their subsidies. And and then also in MC13, there's some provisions for special and differential treatment, which it would be really interesting to talk about that. And they also want to make it okay for subsidies uh, that would lead to conservation. But it's that first one, you know, basically flesh, fleshing out Article 5, putting a lot more meat on the bone in terms of you know, what subsidies are and are not okay, uh, what you can and cannot do, and who gets to make the determination that IUU fishing is occurring. And that that's the kind of stuff that you, you kind of really need to get in writing if you want the agreement to have any chance of being effective at uh, curbing the rapidly depleting fish stocks in our seas. One thing that I noticed, and I think I got this from some some things that you've written. Maybe you can comment on this. There's a distinction between overfishing and overfished, a definitional distinction. Can you uh, explain that to our listeners? Yeah, so that is something that Bradley Sewell had really uh, taught me a lot about over the past few months. We wrote a piece on the key loopholes in the 2022 agreement. And so the thing about 
the the fish stocks, if you just think of it as like sort of like a a, a rectangle, and there's about less than ten percent are are pretty healthy, but then there's another about sixty percent or so, sixty percent that are maximally fished, and then there's about thirty four percent that are overfished. So what the original uh, language dealt with was only the overfished, but what experts in this area say, well, you really need to also get the maximally fished stocks because once you get to overfished, it's often too late. Okay. So you might recall reading about the central Bering Sea, the, uh, the Polak fisheries. And the, once the moratorium was finally declared, it was too late. Those fish never came back. That's what we've also seen in the Chesapeake Bay. In fact, I was just talking to a a friend today who who fishes there, and and he's a lot of fun stories about that area. This but- is this is the secret life of fish. Uh, this, uh, those of you who think of fish as a great source of protein and delicious thing to see on the menu, fish live in schools. They aren't individuals in any way. They, and the schools are vitally important for their own defense and their own existence in the in their habitat. And so when schools are diminished to a certain extent, to sort of a tipping point. The entire stock of the fish, that entire school, can disappear. And so overfishing is a huge problem because you never know exactly when you've reached that tipping point, when the stocks are so depleted within the school that the, the thing implodes, basically. It, biologically, it's not sustainable. And that's unusual among, among wild or, or domestic animals. That's, that, that is a, that's the way fish are. And so it's an obvious problem, and technology has advanced to the point the most sophisticated fishing trawlers can basically vacuum out every living creature in the ocean to a great depth, which is efficient for the boat, but very bad for the stocks. That's, That's why this issue matters so much. Is it's very you know you can you can have all sorts of debates about the temperature of the Earth in fifty years, but what you can't argue is that current technology would not be able to wipe out fish as a source of human protein entirely if if we set our minds to it. We don't want to do that. Nobody wants that as the outcome, but a lot of people have to give in order for that not to be an outcome. But what you're really talking about with overfished is it's sort of analogous to closing the barn door after the horse has left. Yeah, exactly. And, and the idea is to close the barn door before they get out. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so that's why, you know, and, and you know, Scott, you know, exactly right. We already have the technology to completely deplete our seas. You know, we have it already. But, um, and in fact, over half of fishing on the high seas would not even occur without subsidies, right? So you just think of it. I mean, it's not only the tragedy of the commons, but uh, but this is like literally governments using taxpayers' dollars, right? They're using our own money to deplete uh, the fish of tomorrow. Well, it sounds like we've we've taken a group of teenagers and given them a couple of bottles of whiskey and some car keys and tell them to have fun out there. I mean, this is this seems crazy. We're subsidizing something that we know is going to be destructive. But that, I guess that gets us to the subsidies issues and. Uh, I would note that the WTO has dealt with subsidies before it was WTO. I mean, you can go back to the 1970s and the early Tokyo Round Codes. One of them was about industrial subsidies. And it's fairly well managed. We know how to do subsidies investigations. We know how to put remedies in place. What makes fish different? Why can't we agree on how to do these investigations and how to take measures that are effective? Where to start? First of all, no one really owns the fish, but everyone owns the fish. 
there's obviously a lack of clearly defined property rights. But even if you had clearly defined property rights, like some like countries do on their exclusive economic zones, which is basically the the, the coastal areas about 200 nautical miles off off your coast. Um, but e- even if we did have clearly defined property rights, you would still need more to get at the real issue. And it's transparency, right? So you have uh, different uh, fishing vessels going out there. They can change their flags while they're fishing. And in terms of, you know, who calls them out on it, it depends on, well, one, wh- which jurisdiction they're in. And two, if the government actually wants to call them out on it, right? Because it's another thing I found in this area. Andrew Johnson's been doing amazing work on these access agreements, these fisheries access agreements, which coastal nations will sign with other um, operators, other countries to say, okay, well, um, you can fish our waters um, for this amount of money, right? But the terms of those access agreements are rarely made public. Now, in principle, you would think, oh, that should be a win-win because then for these developing countries, you know, they don't have this economies of scale or scope or technology. So, you know, why not get the revenues from someone else who can do it better? Well, in practice, all what happens is that, as Andrew Johnson has written about extensively, is that not only are these access agreements not transparent, but they're also finding that the revenues don't go back to the citizens, that it's often money that, uh, that goes basically into the pockets of some corrupt officials, and that there is, there's no rules on what some of these um, vessels can and cannot fish. So for these coastal nations to say that, you know, they need more time to implement because it would impoverish their citizens, you know, that's what is so mind-boggling because it's their citizens that actually would benefit the most from swift implementation of this agreement, you know, along with other things like more transparency in the access agreements and more transparency on monitoring enforcement and even more local community involvement. Even these indigenous communities have, um, you know, for hundreds of years, they've been monitoring these fish stocks. They could tell you which, which ones are overfished and which ones are maximally fished already. So there's some disconnect between, you know, what, what would be in the benefit for the citizens of these coastal nations versus what would be in the benefit of a, a a few select officials. This gets us a little bit into the question of special and differential treatment, which has been a thorny issue in the WTO in, in a lot of areas, which is it's basically the argument is that uh, from developing countries that we don't have the infrastructure, the capacity or the money to conform to the rules. We need more time. And there's been a disposition in the WTO from the beginning to grant more time for the least developed countries. But then you get into a a more complicated area. Uh, One area, of course, is how long, but the other area is who is, who's a developing country? Who should qualify for special and differential treatment? And I gather this is on the table at the ministerial for the fish agreement too. You've got some countries who want a very long period to comply so long that it may not be, uh, it may make the agreement less than useful. Can you say a little bit more about that? So. India is asking, has been reported as asking for 25 years for a phase in period of this. The thing is, India, as its own government has stated, and actually we have a paper, one of our issue briefs in our research program by two Indian experts on this, have demonstrated quite clearly India is not one of the larger subsidizers of IUU fishing, either in its own EEZs or in the high seas. And India itself is a victim of large foreign subsidized vessels coming in and around its EEZs and overfishing 
and scraping the bottom of the seas. And not only just for the fish, but also for other resources, energy resources. And, and there are a number of um, Indian uh, uh, rooted articles on, on this. So it's actually in India's uh, best interest for a swift implementation of this. India... In terms of the winners and losers, yes, there will be some losers um, for, you know, there's always transition issues, right? But that just means that India needs to figure out how they're going to reallocate their domestic resources to cut for the winner, for the, for the winners to compensate the losers. I mean, here, the, um, the real winners are their future citizens, their citizens today and their future citizens. The losers will be the few select people that are uh, making a lot of money from the uh, subsidized overfishing. And look, I mean, at 25 years, at the rate the effort to catch ratio is, um, is going up. Basically, it's just taking them more and more and more time to catch less and less and less fish. At uh, 25 years, they're, their EEZs will be depleted. So then the, the only place they'll have left to fish, you know, will be the high seas, and then they'll have to subsidize that. So it boggles my mind why they would want a long transition period when they have consistently complained about foreign subsidized large fishing vessels in and around their coastal areas. It seems to me that from what I, at least from what I've read, if the agreement's effective with respect to the very large uh, fishing vessels that Scott alluded to. Biggest loser here may be China. Is that right? What's their attitude in the negotiation? Are they prepared to make a deal or not? Well, China has signed on to the MC-12-2022 agreement. And, you know, they don't seem to be one of the large voice voices holding this up. So China, and just in terms of the agreement moving forward, China does not appear to be the obstacle. You know, it's amazing how long these issues can have a half-life where it feels like there's progress, but it, it's so hard to get to conclusion. So what is it that you expect to happen next week, if anything? And uh, are we going to just you know, sort of nod and wink about all these loopholes? Or is there something that can be done? Is the U.S. planning to do anything? Uh, to make an intervention, I don't know, and I am I am the worst person to to to, to um, predict the future. I mean, I never thought Russia would invade Ukraine. I I never thought Brexit would happen. <laughs> like never. So I'm like the worst person to ask about. Well, we'll just do the opposite. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I am kind of an optimist, but um, the the fact that they haven't, I don't think, uh, as of a few hours, I don't think they've released the text yet, which must. I think might mean that they're still working on it. That's always a telltale sign as you approach a ministerial. Uh, if you don't have a text uh, that is at least agreed by about half the parties, you're you're in deep yogurt. So yeah. hopefully, you know, I mean, you know, and if maybe India is holding out because they want something else. Obviously, the public stock holding deal, you know, they, they've been talking about a lot. But, you know, maybe they'll they'll agree just to keep talking or maybe they will agree to pencil in this text and and hope to wrap it up by the end of the year. And so we get to work on this for even longer this year. You know, but it does seem that um, of all the things the WTO ministerial conference is going to be covering, this one looks to be the least dismal outlook. Fair enough. Bill, what else is on the agenda next week? Well, Christine just alluded to one issue that I thought doesn't look like it's going to be resolved either, but we ought to say a word about it. And that's the public stockholding issue. India is is a, a practitioner of linkage. I think I've often characterized their WTO, WTO view on in ministerials. They, they've been, I think, the biggest problem over the years. And their attitude tends to be, we want what we want. And if we can't get what we want, we'll make sure that nobody else gets anything. Their biggest want is this public stockholding issue, which is an agriculture 
issue that relates to providing an exemption from the normal rules about limits on uh, subsidies for agriculture if the uh, purpose of the subsidy is to basically stockpile food for uh, potential famine and potential shortages going forward. So uh, the idea is you don't want your people to starve, and so you should be allowed to to, uh, encourage production in order to prevent that from happening. I think there's not a lot of controversy about the concept. The problem is that if you exempt uh, countries from the rules, and, and the Indians have been guilty of this, they end up exporting a substantial amount of their production. Uh, they capture market share because their production is subsidized, so they can do it at a, at a lesser cost. That's not stockholding. You know, that's not building up domestic stocks to deal with farm, uh, famine or potential famine. Uh, it's taking advantage of the rules in order to capture market share and make a lot of money for your exporters. And the other countries have resisted Uh, A permanent solution to that, what they have done for the last several ministerials is provide a temporary waiver to countries like India to do this. The Indians want to make essentially the waiver permanent. And as near as I can tell, there's very few other countries that want to do that because they see this as a, you know, a huge loophole that would ultimately disadvantage a lot of producers that play by the rules. But that's the biggest Indian ask. I do think on, on agriculture, they, what they're talking about is, I think, something less ambitious than fish. They're talking about basically a work program in which the ministers agree that we will spend the next time period, whatever that ends up being, focusing on a number of these agriculture issues, none of which are going to be resolved next week. But setting the table and saying this is the agenda on agriculture going forward is not actually is not a small accomplishment. It, it's actually useful. Then, of course, you know, the rubber will hit the road afterwards as they actually have to have the discussion. But it's a start. I agree with Christine. I think there's a real uh, a possibility of linkage here where the Indians are holding out on fish in order to get what they want on uh, on public stockholding. And it'll be interesting to see how that chain gets broken. I think what happened in, in uh, MC-12, where there was Indian resistance then to, to the the more modest agreement that was was ultimately reached was that there was pressure on India from other developing countries because India often claims we are we are speaking for the developing world you know we are their spokesman and what you had in MC12 was a number of developing countries going to India and saying you're not speaking for us you know our interest is in a stronger fishing agreement so we can protect our areas and we can protect our artisanal artisanal whatever you say however you say it fishermen and that what the indians were trying to do was was going to make things worse rather than better and i think that set them back a little bit uh, and they ultimately uh, agreed to some things that i think they probably didn't want to agree to we'll see if that happens again if it does i think it's a healthy movement i think it's it's healthy for developing countries particularly the least developed countries to stand up and actually recognize what their real interests are, which hasn't always happened, and not to let uh, larger economies, of which India is a classic example, speak for them. The other things on the agenda, the other big one on the agenda, and Christine, chime in if you have views, uh, we don't mean to cut you off, is um, the e-commerce moratorium. And here is a question of, um, I think, U.S. leadership. And, and once again, India is the uh, uh, one of several problem children here who wants to uh, get rid of it. Basically, this is a, a moratorium on the taxation of e-commerce transactions. That, of course, is very important for uh, our American big tum- 
big tech companies, Amazon being a good example, that you know engage in a lot of these transactions. If you allow these things to be taxed, and the moratorium has been in existence for years, but it's always been temporary. So every ministerial that rolls around, we have this same argument. It usually goes down to the last day or the last minute. Uh, and then somebody folds, and we'll probably see that again. But our view here, I think, or the Shoal Chair's view, has been that this is actually very important to small and medium-sized enterprises uh, because increasingly they do a lot of their business uh, on the Internet, and which has been enormously enabling for them. When I was working for Senator Rockefeller, which was quite a while ago, we discovered this because uh, his wife, uh, Sharon Percy Rockefeller, said a uh, helped create a quilting cooperative in West Virginia. And these were basically ladies out in rural West Virginia who would make quilts and and would go to local uh, farmers markets on the weekend and sell them. But what Sharon was able to do and, and others were able to do is introduce them to the, to the internet. So now they could sell them on the internet to people all over the world. And they were beautiful quilts. There's a market for this. And of course, there's a lot of downstream activity because, you know, you need packaging, you need UPS or FedEx to ship them, you need a payment system uh, to get uh, get them their money. So all these things come into place. None of this would have happened without the internet. And if you're going to tax that kind of commerce, you really, you know, it's like putting a 20-pound weight around these people's necks. They don't have capital simply to get going and do all that themselves and pay a tax at the same time. The developing countries say, well, we need the revenue, you know, and there's a lot of money there and they're right about it. Of course, that gets back to a point that Chris, uh, Christine made earlier about about uh, fishing in, in uh, territorial waters. It's where does the money actually go? You know, if it goes to the government, does it end up in somebody's Swiss bank account or does it actually end up doing something to the advantage of those SMEs in that country? The fight uh, is complicated because it it's sort of it's sort of uh, uh, what's the right word sort of a bipolar thing. You either you either extend it or you don't. Now you can add you know qualifications or you can add study requirements and things like that. But basically, it's kind of a yes or no thing, which makes it more complicated than if you're trying to negotiate an area where you can find a middle ground. But it's essential, I, I think, to do it. In the discussions I've had with the U.S. administration, they figured out that that's important. Well, that's, that's, a, that's great. I'm glad they- it is great. And I wasn't so sure about it a year ago. But they seem to have figured out that it's important. It seems to be a priority. Uh, we'll see. I don't think they handled it particularly well two years ago. They pulled it out at the last minute. I hope this time they'll get a better result. But once again, it is India uh, and also Indonesia that are causing the problems. There have been published reports that South Africa, which was the, the third member of the objecting triumvirate, has changed its position on the issue, in which case that would be a good thing. So I think those are the biggest issues. And the moratorium on e-commerce, taxation of e-commerce, goes back to a, a previous Democratic administration, if my memory serves. Ambassador Charlene Barshevsky, friend of the program and friend of CSIS, when she was trade, uh, trade uh, ambassador, got this in, and it was perfect timing because nobody was taxing anything. There was really almost nothing to tax. There was no harm done at the time. And no, so nobody was counting on the revenue. And it was relatively easy to agree to the moratorium. Uh, and now it's been extended ever since the, the 90s. So it's pretty remarkable that it's – and it's done a lot of good. We did this we, – we had this topic on a previous Trade Guys episode. Uh, and when I got home, my elder daughter – this was several years back. My elder daughter told me she was an Etsy seller. So she's an online seller. I had no idea. She made, she makes uh, counted cross cross stitch patterns. Yeah, I love the um the going back to the roots of this because when I was at Sidley, I worked as an economist, of course, um, but uh, you know one of our 
one of my favorite projects was working with PayPal. And they were great because they just basically said, like, here's a list of research questions. Here's all the data. Go away and come back when you have something that can be, you know, defensible and a blind review. I mean, that's a perfect, <laughs> that's, you know, that's a dream come true for for a trade economist who doesn't usually, you know, we don't have access to uh, PayPal transaction data. And what we found in, and all those results are, are published, was that the um, the small and medium-sized companies that use PayPal are far more likely to export than, their, than the national average. And then we broke it down by male versus female. And, um, and the female-owned businesses are disproportionately benefited by uh, getting that export platform. And then also other groups that had uh, disproportionate benefits of, of using PayPal, you know, financial transaction tool tech is um, firms that were uh, in the heartland versus on the coasts and rural firms versus urban firms and minority firms, minority owned firms. So you know, these are all the these are all the types of firms that you know that we we want to see also be able to participate in the in the global economy, right? And so being able to use that digital platform because now you have PayPal as a as a uh, payment method, you know, benefits everyone, but it's, but disproportionately benefits you know all these groups that many, particularly this administration, is so uh, seems so concerned about um, about helping. So. If anything, they should be pushing for this moratorium, you know, like a, a permanent moratorium, because it's helping all these um, groups that, you know, may not have been able to uh, participate in the global economy that, uh, you know, as, as other groups. We also looked at PayPal working capital. That's another uh, new innovative financial tech tool. But it's also, um, you know, it's basically PayPal's way of, of um of giving access to capital to people that use it, and um, and they've been doing it, um, you know, not only within borders, but if they could do it across borders, they could, uh, you know, we we found that there could be great benefits because we found that the small and medium sized businesses that were taking advantage of PayPal working capital business loans were uh, tended to be disproportionately um, located in areas where the big banks had closed down. And so, you know, it's basically filling the gap, right? And so it's, you know, again, I mean, being able to help these disadvantaged communities through these new tools. And that's why, you know, the, the, at least the data that I've worked with, you know, would point to a permanent moratorium on e-commerce. Well, that would be nice. I think that probably the best we're going to get is another extension. And we're going to have to fight this, continue to fight this battle because there will always be issues that other countries will link it to. Um, but the irony is, is, you know, if there's any country that has a whole bunch of small entrepreneurs, it's India, you know, and they ought to see the the advantage to this for the, you know, for their own economy. Well, Christine, thanks so much for joining the program. We really, you know so much, you've forgotten more about fish subsidies than Bill and I have ever known. So we really appreciate you donating your expertise to our audience. The audience now has sort of the cliff notes for next week's conference. Uh, but why don't you tell the audience where they can find your writings? So I, I, I point this out because Christine is a marvelous writer as well as a good economist. Oh, my gosh. You're, you're so nice. <laughs> okay. You, you'll want to read her. But wh where can they find your, your writing? So I'm at Mercatus. Mercatus is Latin for market. So Mercatus is M-E-R-C-A-T-U-S, Mercatus.org. And yeah, just Google my name and Mercatus and we, you can find us there. All my stuff is there. And, you know, we're situated at George Mason University. Well, oh, I also I also have a Forbes column. Oh, okay. Terrific. 
Well, we hope you'll come back again when we're when we're stumped and, and you have some knowledge. So we're delighted to have you this week. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here with you guys today, and I love your work. Well, and as friends of fish, because we are friends of fish, uh, we're happy to have you. And we hope that uh, next week we will be reporting on the ministerial, although I think that it won't be over by the time we do next week's podcast. These things have a long history of taking longer than they're scheduled uh, and ending up, uh, you know, if they're supposed to finish on a Friday, they always end up in, uh, ending at 5 a.m. on Sunday morning. And I doubt that this one's going to be any different, but uh, we can certainly uh, provide a progress report at the time. And uh, we will be back, and we hope the fish will uh, will win. Um, or if they don't win, we hope they'll live to fight another day. Fair enough. Thanks again. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.